More Questions Than Answers with Julie Panessi, brought to you by the Democracy Fund. Hi everyone, Julie here. Of all of the very strange things that have happened over the last couple of years, possibly the strangest and the most problematic is the complete minimization and in some circles ignoring of the concept of informed consent. And that means that individuals get to make choices about their medical care uh, and be given the appropriate information to do so. A few weeks ago now, probably closer to a month, the Pfizer data was released, and I had the pleasure of interviewing uh, Dr. Aaron Cariati, who is a bioethicist and a medical doctor, and he's going to walk us through some of the data, and I think this will just be the first of a number of different conversations. You can have a look at this conversation on Rumble, because as you probably know, YouTube isn't going to be too crazy about what we're chatting about, but that probably means it's just the stuff you want to hear about. So have a great day, and I really hope you enjoy this conversation. I'm just so delighted to be talking with you today. We've been on a number of different Zoom things together. And I was thinking, you know, leading up to our conversation that, that we have quite a bit in common, right? We both yes. taught ethics with a medical ethics background at universities for a number of years. And we both challenged our university's COVID vaccine mandates. And we were, I don't know all the particulars of your story, but we were, I think, not well received by our, our questioning was not well received. And um, I was terminated with cause and you, I believe, were terminated mm -hmm. was January of this year. I was, yeah, back in December of, of last year. December. Um, and it's so striking to me, I mean, going through academic training, uh, sitting, you know, in conferences with academics, intellectuals, medical people, whatever, that you can't get them to, to agree about anything. They take disagreement right. to be a sport, to be part of the fun of academia. And over the last two years, we have seen none of that. I know of no other bioethicist in the world, really, maybe with a few exceptions, who have challenged the COVID response in any significant way over the last couple of years. And you, you know, you are one of the only ones who are speaking out about this. What is your take on that? Why is there has been, why has there been such uniformity in the thinking of other medical ethicists and that, and that you are then an outlier in relation to them? You and I are outliers. I mean, that's a really great question. It's an important question. It's a question that has puzzled me, certainly, mm -hmm. for the last uh, at least a year and, and really longer. Um, my experience just suggests that somehow in our institutions, including academic institutions, there was a, a climate of fear and urgency that was created around the pandemic response, whereby people came to believe wrongly, I think, that challenging the mainstream public health narrative amounted to engaging in, in something that was imminently dangerous. That if I stick my neck out and do something or say something wrong, right? It's challenge an idea. Up. Yeah, that, well, not only, not only that, but this sort of suggestion that you're killing people. Right. If if we're proposing, let's say, lockdowns or we're proposing vaccine mandates or a vaccine passport system as a way to save lives. 
and you challenge that, especially if you challenge that publicly where someone could read your opinion online or on social media or hear you say something in an interview, that's going to sway a gullible population to do dangerous things that will ultimately cost them their lives. And so somehow, um, and in bioethics, actually, you know, we're dealing with life and death questions all the time. And it just, it just makes me wonder if how serious are many of these bioethicists about their ethical convictions, about their endorsement of certain ethical principles? Um, do they really believe in, let's say, the doctrine of informed consent? Or is that something that they're just ready to abandon and throw overboard as soon as uh, someone in a position of authority says, you know, if you stand up and raise questions about this policy based on your ethical principles, you're going to be responsible for harming people or killing people or getting in the way of the necessary pandemic response. So I, I don't know if, if it just took people who are too used to operating in a theoretical ivory tower kind of language game mm. um, atmosphere and then suddenly sobered them up and at that point they weren't <laughs> they weren't ready to put a stake in the ground um or mm. if uh, if people were just too overwhelmed by fear and uncertainty to trust their own judgment um but it, it was a very very strange phenomenon um and I, I was involved in pandemic-related policies with other bioethicists at the University of California from the beginning. So we have five hospitals scattered around the state. And the UC Office of the President, which oversees all the different branch campuses of the University of California, from you know, UCSF to UCLA to UC Irvine, where I work, we all had uh, representatives uh, from bioethics and critical care on this UC Office of the President committee and we dealt with very sensitive and what could have become real world policies. So at the beginning, we developed a ventilator triage policy, uh, mm -hmm. you know, in the early months when people were worried that we were going to run out of ventilators or other critical resources, a very sensitive policy that had, you know, significant consequences. Mm -hmm. And it was, it was actually very edifying to work with this group and hammering out uh, what I think is a, is a pretty well done uh, ventilator triage uh, policy. And, and we published on that. We published a, a piece in the Hastings Center kind of comparing our policy to the University of Pittsburgh's uh, already published policy that had served as sort of a model and explained why we did a few things differently than the UPIT model. And then we moved on from there to uh, looking at allocation of other scarce resources like monoclonal antibodies when those are, were in short supply. Uh, and then we developed the vaccine allocation policy. Uh, for the early rollout, you know, who should be in line first to get the vaccine when the, the demand outstripped the supply for the first uh, month or two. But then when it came to the pandemic triage policy, our committee was really not involved, not sort of um, asked to be engaged in drafting that policy. It uh, drafted that policy came to us sort of from on high and they're really, I tried to get a discussion going on it. I tried to raise questions and objections to it. And it just, it just met with complete radio silence from uh, the general counsel of the university, who I had worked with for months and months and months very closely, texting 
back and forth on evenings and weekends uh, on these other policies. Uh, but suddenly, when it came to the vaccine mandate, it, it seemed like that issue was somehow placed in a different category and it was dealt with differently. And it was framed in such a way that challenging it was was seen as, I don't know, sort of in, in really bad taste or um, just not something not something that we're really that we're going to have a conversation about. I was just going to ask, do you think that there's an element of moral exhaustion by the time we got to the point where, I mean, this was a, in Canada, it was sort of a year ago yeah. where institutions were starting to think about, not even actually, maybe now, but a year ago where they were looking at mandates. Um, do you think by that point we had, you know, suffered the psychological effects of fear so much and separation and isolation that we didn't have the mental resources that you normally need to rally to think critically through a problem. Do you think that's an element of this? You know, I think there's, I think there's something to that. I do think the prolonged lockdown policy and that whole framework was very much bound up with the promise of a safe and effective vaccine, you know, by the end of 2020 or mm -hmm. early 2021, you know, warp speed. Um, and and the, the secret hope of the lockdowners was that that was going to be delivered. And then when we saw the early clinical trials data from the Pfizer vaccine with the purported 95% efficacy, it looked like a, that gamble had paid off, I think, to many people. And so this was going to be our ticket out. This was going to be the thing that made all that pain and agony of 2020 worthwhile. Uh, this is where we would get sort of the return on the investment. And so I think a, a kind of moral exhaustion, as you described, combined with, um, if this is the promised remedy, why would you stand up, Cariotti, and be such a pain in the neck? Uh, what, you know, Dr. Panessi, why are you still asking these inconvenient questions? Yeah, just shut questions? up and sit down. <laughs> yeah, just shut up and sit down. We're done with this. This is, you know, this is time to do real pragmatic science. And you know, let the egghead philosophers take a back seat for a little while. Let us just let us sort this thing out, and then you guys can ruminate on it and go back to your 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 nuanced deliberations. Um, In other words, so, useless deliberation. Yeah, That's well, mean I, I mean, you know, pe people always think people always want to endorse ethics. I mean, no no one wants to be seen as an immoral or unethical person right. or someone who doesn't care about ethics. They're always ready to endorse it. Um, except when it comes time to give money to your ethics program, or when it, <laughs> when it, you know, when it comes to something like this, where your ethics may get in the way of other interests. And I think there was a combination of economic interests and political interests and a, a framing of the mass vaccination campaign as the, the only reasonable solution to this, to this conundrum that just, uh, allowed people to cast any dissident voices as uh, kind of inconvenient and absurd at best and dangerous and um, harmful at worst. Um, and, and that's not, I mean, that's not a good setup because as we've seen now, I think many of the concerns of the, the early critics of the mass vaccination campaign have now been borne out. Uh, very clearly. I think the mass vaccination campaign was clearly, uh, on the whole, a failure. 
Uh, I know that's a strong statement, but um, if this was supposed to stop the spread of COVID, it clearly did not. Uh, majority of Americans, uh, majority of Canadians very likely have been infected with COVID despite uh, the lockdowns, the social distancing, the scrubbing of surfaces, the masks, the mass vaccination campaign, uh, the, the virus. This is a good thing maybe. In some well, sense. yeah. I mean, you know. Omicron was the vaccine that we had all been waiting for. Uh, natural immunity is going, going to remain our primary way out of the pandemic. That's not to say that these vaccines might not have some utility for older and more vulnerable populations, but we know whatever utility they have is quite short term. So their efficacy, efficacy is short term at best. You have to get through an initial 14-day period where your chance of getting infected with COVID is increased after vaccination. That's a that's a fact that wasn't adequately explained to the public. Um, and those folks, you know, when they are infected, are put in the unvaccinated category, which skews the efficacy data very considerably. Uh, I think it just distorts the efficacy data, to be honest. Um, and then it, you know, efficacy declines. For, uh, between four and six months. By six months, it's it's close to zero for the mRNA DNA vaccines, and each new booster uh, gives you a, even an even shorter window of efficacy than the, than the previous shot. So, uh, you know, the fourth shot that's now being recommended in the United States, we had a major population based study from Israel showing that whatever efficacy you get from that. Um, is, is modest, it's well below the 50% threshold set for FDA approval, and it only lasts seven to eight weeks. And uh, that will be true for each subsequent booster and deteriorating efficacy, is that? If that, if that trend continues, I mean, that would be the reasonable hypothesis given that the, you know, the third dose uh, gave you shorter efficacy than the first two, and the fourth dose gives you shorter efficacy than the third dose. We have no reason to believe that that trend won't continue. That's the, the reasonable you know, scientific hypothesis, I think, at this point. And it looks like adverse effects increase with each new dose as well. So the safety concerns of these vaccines, uh, I, I think are becoming harder to hide and harder to ignore with, uh, with each passing month. I, I th yeah, thank you very much for sort of contextualizing all of that. And I, one sort of intuition I've had for a while is that we have, I mean, one of my area of specialization was Aristotle and his virtue ethics. Yep. And he talked about courage a lot and courage is a function of the relative amounts of fear and confidence you have, right? So I'm sort of thinking about fear and confidence in this COVID situation. It seems to me we have had an unwarranted amount of fear for the virus and an unwarranted right. amount of confidence for the vaccine. And that, you know, if it looks something like this, we, we need to, I don't know where the right balance is, yep. but we've, it needs, it's been skewed for a lot of the reasons that you've mentioned. Um, you mentioned, you know, I, I'd like to go slowly through some of this because I think that not everyone is as clear about what we mean by efficacy and safety of a vaccine when we're talking sure. about that, right? Yep. Um, and one of the reason, main reasons I wanted to chat with you is that not too long ago, something came out called the Pfizer data. 
And I think it's, it's very, and I know you were very instrumental in bringing this to, to the public eye, um, but it's not gotten, I think, the, the uptake or the publicity that it deserves. And there are, I'm sure, a number of um, political and economic reasons for that, but also it's very raw data that's very hard yep. for the average person to understand. And so it's, it's very, very grateful that you're willing to chat with us and, and walk us through some of this. But could you um, just in very simple terms explain, you know, what is the fi Pfizer data? Mm -hmm. Um, where did it come from and what's mm -hmm. in it basically? Can we kind of, I know those sure. are not simple yeah. questions, but <laughs> we can start with some of them. <laughs> yeah. So, so this data that we're now getting came from a freedom of information act, which is a law in the United States, uh, petition basically to the court to require the FDA to release the FDA clinical trial data. Phase three, which is where you do a double-blind, randomized, placebo-controlled trial to demonstrate whether an intervention works or not. That's the gold standard for demonstrating efficacy, how well a medication or a vaccine works for the intended purpose that it's given for. And the last phase of the trial, after you do animal testing and then safety testing to look at side effects, is you do this phase three uh, double-blind uh, placebo-controlled trial. Now, when Pfizer's vaccine or the Pfizer-BioNTech uh, vaccine was only approved under emergency use authorization, under U.S. federal law, they were not required to release that clinical trials data. Basically, the, the study that Pfizer did to, to attempt to prove that their vaccine worked. But on the day that the community received authorization or technically provisional authorization, mm -hmm. uh, the federal government was required to release that data. So I coordinated a group of academic scientists and physicians and submitted this freedom of information, this FOIA request to the FDA to get that data. And our plan was just to make it publicly available to independent researchers. So we're posting it online on, uh, on our website, uh, public health. Yeah, wait, what is yeah it's public health and medical professionals for transparency and it's a not a small group the name of the group well it's it's grown considerably so initially there were about i want to say 25 or 30 of us um, but many other academic scientists and physicians have signed on to that group and are participating in now combing through the thousands of pages of data that have been released so far so you know, you mentioned a lot of this hasn't trickled out to the public yet. That's because it's actually going to take time to sort, uh, you know, the, the, the meaningful um, data points and the, the signal to noise ratio is low in this sort of thing. Because you have pages and pages and pages of demographic data for all the trial participants and, you know, lab testing for all the trial participants, most of which is not very interesting. So it's just going to take some time to, to comb through it. Mm -hmm. uh, but interestingly, uh, you know, transparency is one of the central principles, supposedly, of public health ethics. So when we were doing our ventilator triage policy, we laid out the ethical principles on which our triage guidelines were based, and transparency was one of those key public health principles. So we said, you know, if, if this vaccine is being mandated, if people are losing their jobs um, because they're refusing to take it, 
uh, we should have access to, to the clinical trials data. Um, the FDA came back and said, we'll give you 500 pages a month, which if you do the math would have taken them 75 years to release data that they took only 108 days to review. So the judge said, no, you have eight months to release this. Then this Pfizer- Was this a judge in Texas or California? This was a judge in Texas, but it was a district court of the, the federal court system. So this, was a, this okay. was a federal case that happened to be filed in Texas. Okay. Um, rather than a, a part of the Texas state uh, judicial system. Mm -hmm. Pfizer intervened and, and requested permission to redact the data before, before it was released. And what does that mean for people? That means they would, take, they would take a black pen and cross out the numbers or the sentences that they didn't want the public to read, right? So a redaction would be an edited version with stuff taken out. Um, and it's, it wasn't surprising that Pfizer did that. They, you know, they have an economic interest in not releasing any data that may raise yellow flags or red flags, or, <laughs> you know, cause concern. Uh, but what was surprising, Julie, is that the, the federal Department of Justice lawyers representing the FDA sided with Pfizer yeah. and the FDA petitioned the court to allow Pfizer to redact the data. And the judge, again, in this case, we have a very good judge, said no, Pfizer that you know has a conflict of interest. They will not be allowed to do that. So we're starting Astounding to get that to data. me, which is, I mean, if if you if you've lived in Canada for the last few months, you would find the existence of this judge just astounding. <laughs> yes. Well and, and he gratefully apparently so. is is not in the yeah, it's one of the few upright um, uh, uh, you know public authorities who's maybe not entirely in the back pocket of uh, the pharmaceutical industry. But in any case, I'll, I'll just mention one uh, of the documents that's been released so far, which is, I think, fairly readily accessible and it synthesizes uh, some interesting information. And this was, this was a document on, uh, it's called post-marketing surveillance, which means uh, what happens after this newly approved drug is released. And this document looks at the first three months of vaccine safety data after the vaccine is released. Now, unfortunately, at the end of the shortened three-month clinical trial, the monitoring of safety um, goes down considerably in terms of its rigor. So during a clinical trial, you have these two groups, one of which got a placebo, a, 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 you know, a, a nothing injection, and another that got the, the vaccine. And both the participants and the researchers don't know who got what. So that's what we mean by double-blinded, right? Because if you, if you know that you're in this arm or that arm, that can skew perceptions and assumptions and so forth. Mm -hmm. While you're in that clinical trial, there's very rigorous safety testing. So we don't just wait for trial participants to call us up and tell us that they're having a side effect or an adverse event. We check in with them and we monitor them carefully and we run labs and we do a medical examination. At the end of the cl clinical trial, however, all of that stopped. And in fact, they destroyed the placebo arm at the end of the clinical trial by offering everyone the vaccine. Mm -hmm. On the premise, and Dr. Fauci has done this many times before, rushing 
different AIDS drugs to market, for example, on the premise that uh, it's already shown some efficacy, so it would be unethical not to offer it to the people in the placebo arm. Now, there could be situations in which that's true, but I think this is this is one of those situations where we needed a longer clinical trial with more robust safety and efficacy data before Almost we like made that call. begging the question, isn't it? Like you're assuming exactly. that you're trying to prove, you're assuming that the intervention is effective. And so you act as though it is by giving it to people without letting <laughs> Exactly. It, right. Yeah, that's exactly right. Um, so in, in those three months after it's released, we're relying on reports, either from a treating physician or, uh, you know, someone else who submits to the, to the safety monitoring database uh, and to the company an adverse event. So we know that these adverse events are very likely underreported by a factor of anywhere from five to 40, depending on the study that you look at. Um, okay, can we talk, let's just pause on that for a minute, yeah. because now that those studies you're talking about that assess so when people are self-reporting whether or not they're having an adverse event, are those studies recent or are they pre-COVID era? There have been there have been both. There have been okay. more recent studies suggesting that the COVID reports themselves may be underreported. Mm -hmm. um, you know, trying to compare theirs, the the passive reporting system, vaccine adverse event reporting system, to uh, medical records data. Um, so in the past, it's been shown that VAERS was underreported, um, mm -hmm. by sometimes orders of, of magnitude for other issues. Mm -hmm. And there have been some attempts to look at it with, uh, COVID vaccines as well. And, and, and both of, both of those, uh, approaches have strongly suggested that it's very significantly underreported, but in any case, Mm -hmm. uh, we got we got this document from Pfizer showing that there were 150,000 uh, voluntarily reported adverse events in the first three months. Um, there were about 24,000 uh, significant adverse events in, in distinct individuals. So there's there's more total adverse events reported because someone might report more than one adverse event for the same patient. Uh, one of the interesting numbers in that document, which was redacted at first, we had to push back to, to get the version of this document that didn't have this number removed. Uh, but one of the numbers that was taken out was Pfizer admitted in there that they had to hire 800 new full-time employees in the first three months just to handle and process all the adverse events that were being reported. And they anticipated having to hire another 1,200 um, soon in order to keep up with this flood of... And that is, just to contextualize, the, this is already a significantly under-reporting uh, right. event, presumably. I mean, the reason I asked you about, about those studies is because I think the, the stigmatization surrounding um, vaccine skepticism, if we want to put it that way, like the psychology to that is very interesting. But even more, I mean, just exponentially so in this COVID era. So it's quite interesting to me that there would have been any reporting or any significant mm -hmm. amount of reporting given that. I mean, people have to go, yep. they have to go to the drug company, they have to go to their doctor, they have to say, look, I'm experiencing this and I think it might be due to the vaccine. And mm -hmm. 
And then the doctor has to take at least minimal 30 minutes out of his or her busy schedule to navigate this clunky, you know, government sponsored website. And that's if things go smoothly and you know exactly what you're doing. You can submit a various report in about 30 minutes. You know, I, I talk to many people who get, you know, minute 28, the system freezes up, you know, and you try to reboot it and it's lost all the data that you submitted. So this is, this is, you know, people say, well, anyone can, you know, report one of these. There's probably some fraudulent reports in there. Well, you'd have to be pretty motivated to submit uh, enough fraudulent reports to actually skew those numbers. I mean, this, we're talking about hours and hours and hours of, uh, of, uh, of work. For to, a very busy um, person. Already. For a very busy person, um, you know, that, and that navigating the system requires some, some reasonable degree of medical knowledge and so forth. So, um, so yeah, I mean, there, there may be some hardcore vaccine skeptics that have here and there submitted a fraudulent uh, death report or something like that to theirs, but it seems just beyond plausible to me uh, mm-hmm. that that this wouldn't be underreported. And mm-hmm. and actually, what needs to happen, Julie, is that our government has access to better databases for looking at vaccine safety issues. Um, databases where they can basically pull data from uh, private and public health insurance, like mm-hmm. Medicare, um, but also private insurance that we have here in, in the States, and look at medical records data um, that gives you a much clearer and more sort of robust uh, picture on uh, vaccine adverse events. And they did that for myocarditis, but they haven't done that for any of the other safety signals hmm. that have have come up in VAERS. So VAERS mm. is imperfect and correlation does not imply cause, causation and all the usual caveats, mm-hmm. but it's doing what it was designed to do, which is mm. to send up a signal indicating that public health authorities need to dig deeper into this to either verify it or, um, or falsify it. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they're not doing that is very concerning because myocarditis was one of many safety signals that has been sent up by this system, and, and going back to that uh, that Pfizer data uh, document that I mentioned a moment ago, mm-hmm. uh, w- one of the other interesting pieces in this document is a list in there's there's an appendix with nine solid pages of distinct adverse events that were reported. Um, it'll what make your eyes of, yeah. What are some of the other this. ones? I've I've read well, them with great horror. You know? Yeah. Um, I've never seen anything like this, looking at package inserts or other, you know, physician's desk reference type uh, type documents. Um, but just to, to try to make sense out of this nine pages of solid text, what, what we're seeing is high numbers of neurological issues. We're seeing a potential signal, signal of an uptick in cancers, especially blood cancers like leukemia and lymphoma. Uh, for people that have been in remission for a long time, doing well, suddenly their cancer comes back or new onset leukemia and lymphoma. So my colleague, Ryan Cole, who's a pathologist, has raised uh, this issue because he's seeing it, he's seeing in the, in the lab and the work that he does. And there's been signals here and there um, from, from other folks. I, I a lymphoma expert at a local uh, top-notch cancer center reached out to me very early on, actually, in the pandemic, 
when I started challenging vaccine mandates because he was he was seeing this and he was alarmed uh, by the rising uh, lymphoma cases. So is Cariotti saying that the COVID vaccines cause cancers? No, I'm not saying that. What I am saying is that we've seen now from multiple sources a safety signal that requires more rigorous mm-hmm. follow-up and monitoring because this is a potential issue. And the fact that we're not getting that rigorous follow-up and monitoring is very concerning to me. So neurological, potentially cancer, uh, gastrointestinal, dermatological. um, Basically, what we're seeing is that this this can affect multiple organ systems, including the brain. We know that the lipid nanoparticle, which carries the mRNA uh, and delivers it from the mRNA vaccines, we know that that can get into various organs, the liver, um, vaccine-induced hepatitis is another safety signal, inflammation of the liver that we've seen. Um, We know from animal studies in Japan, the Japanese version of the FDA required Pfizer to submit an animal study looking at what we call biodistribution. Where does the, the envelope for the mRNA, the lipid nanoparticle go in the body? And we found it widely distributed in the body. So it was designed, there was a mechanism designed to make it stay in the deltoid, in the shoulder muscle where it's injected, but that mechanism didn't work. We know it goes to multiple organ systems. In that uh, Japanese animal model study, the highest concentration of lipid nanoparticle and presumably mRNA that's inside of it was found in the ovaries. Mm-hmm. I was going so, to ask you about fertility because that didn't make the list of the things that you mentioned, but is well, that also? Yes, no, I, I need to mention for fertility. So we have that we have that concerning signal. We know that the ovaries are responsible for ovulation, for uh, the regulation of the menstrual cycle, um, and that the, the number of eggs that a woman has, number of ovum in a woman's um, um, ovaries is fixed at puberty, basically. Mm-hmm. You're, you're not going to get any more. Uh, what you get is, is, is an attrition as you ovulate each month until you get to menopause. So if you damage that, that could have long-term consequences on fertility. Now, what have we seen um, in bears? And what have we seen, certainly anecdotally, uh, lots of people are reporting menstrual irregularities including things like postmenopausal bleeding, which is very unusual and certainly concerning. And this is concerning enough that the NIH set aside uh, funding this year to study the effects of the COVID vaccine on, they didn't say menstruation, but on fertility and you know the, the menstrual cycle. Mm-hmm. Now the NIH would not have set aside that money to study this unless there was some concern that it may be adversely impacting um, uh, a woman's uh, fertility. Mm -hmm. We certainly have seen uh, cases in bears reported um, and anecdotally from fertility clinics reported higher, higher numbers of pregnancy loss, you know, spontaneous miscarriage Mm -hmm. um, in, in vaccinated individuals versus unvaccinated individuals. Again, is Cariotti saying definitively that the vaccines harm women's fertility? No, I'm not saying that. We need more rigorous studies to establish that. What I'm saying is we now have multiple safety signals from multiple different sources suggesting mm-hmm. that there, 
very well may be a problem here. And the, the rigorous uh, investigation that is necessary hasn't been done yet. And therefore, while we're waiting for more definitive data, I think we should exercise caution. I think we should certainly not mandate that any woman of childbearing age take this vaccine until we know definitively that there's not a problem. Another, another weird ethical kind of upside down flip that's occurred, Julie, is the whole question of burden of proof seems to have been turned upside down, right? It's not the responsibility of vaccine skeptics to prove that the vaccines are unsafe, right? That's actually insane. This is something, <laughs> this is something, <laughs> right? I mean, this is something that not only has been offered to mm-hmm. the general population over the age of five, but in many jurisdictions, uh, in many institutions, it's been mandated on pain of losing your job or not being able to travel or not being able to engage in public events. Um, the burden of proof is on those who authorized it and certainly on those who are mandating it to establish definitively that it is safe. That has not been done yet. And what they're saying is that, well, they've been proven to be safe. And it's it's interesting because often when you push someone down that line a little bit, uh-huh. the evidence they give is, well, look, it's been rolled out into the public and everybody it's, is fine. It's been given to billions of people, right? That's the fine. only argument that I've seen that it's been proven to be safe. And in fact, it's been given to billions of people. And if you're paying attention, you're seeing lots of safety signals, even with our very imperfect post Uh, clinical trials, safety monitoring, we are seeing exactly what we would expect to see if there were significant safety issues with this vaccine. One um, question that I often seem to run through my head on a daily basis is, I mean, I, you know, I mean, more than the average person, I think I think about this and talk with people like you and and understand about this lipid nanoparticle uh, spreading throughout the body. what is it about the mechanism of that and the uniqueness of human bodies, I guess, mm-hmm. that in your view would explain why some people do suffer adverse neurological um, right. cardiovascular events and other people don't? You know, we, we, do, we are seeing people who are having miscarriages. I just heard of a yep. story of someone who was in, uh, you know, had a blood clot, otherwise perfectly healthy. And, but then there are other people who are, they've gotten pregnant, gotten three doses of, you know, the vaccine while pregnant, and they seem, seem to have a healthy, what explains that difference? To yeah. That's a great question. So first of all, there's there's something called the blood-brain barrier that keeps a lot of medications and other things out of the brain. Now, if you're giving a medication for depression or for Alzheimer's, you need it to cross the blood-brain barrier and have effects on your central nervous system. Right. But for a lot of other medications, the fact that they don't cross the blood-brain barrier is a plus in terms of safety, because then we don't have to worry about cognitive side effects or other adverse effects Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. on the nervous system. Well, the lipid nanoparticle crosses the blood-brain barrier. Uh, The lipid nanoparticle helps the mRNA get into your cells because each cell in your body, including your neurons, has a cell membrane, kind of the, the outer part of the cell that holds the cell together is made up of lipids and fats. Lipids are a form of, of fat. Mm-hmm. So, you know, oil and water don't mix. Um, 
that's because the, the oil has lipids in it uh, that are polarized differently than what you get with water-based solutions. Um, and so the body kind of uses that to, to encase ourselves in things that act as a sort of barrier to other things getting in from the blood, which is primarily water-based. So long story short, the, the thing that allows these vaccines to deliver the mRNA to your cells, it has to get inside of your cells to work with your cellular machinery to produce the spike protein, which is what the mRNA in the vaccine produces, the spike protein on the original Wuhan strain of the virus. So the thing that allows the mRNA to get into your cells, which is a, an upside in terms of how that technology is supposed to work, is also a downside in terms of allowing it to access places in your body that other things without that particular type of envelope delivery system wouldn't be able to access, including your brain and including all of the cells in your body. Now, it's possible that the lipid nanoparticle itself has some inflammatory, pro-inflammatory processes, but we also know that the spike protein itself can trigger both clotting and other inflammatory responses. Mm -hmm. So when you express the spike protein on one of your own cells and you produce antibodies to the spike protein, you can rev up the immune system in such a way that you, you produced an autoimmune type reaction. And that's the other set of potential, I would say likely problems that we're seeing with this vaccine that was found in that Pfizer document that I mentioned earlier. Lots of things that are or certainly could be autoimmune related. So the immune system is a very delicate system and a very delicate balance that tries to attack things that are foreign and toxic to your body and rid your body of them like viruses mm -hmm. without getting too revved up such that it attacks your own body as though one of your own cells is a, something foreign. And what we call autoimmune disorders are the immune system for one reason or another getting off kilter and attacking your healthy organs or your healthy blood cells instead of attacking a bacteria it's or a virus. It's just that different people, different bodies have different immune, just different qualities and, mm -hmm. and types of immune yeah. systems. And so Absolutely. that's why- Absolutely, which is which is another reason why when you see safety signals like this, you, you have to you have to study them because you know we may discover that there's a subset of the population that we can predict will have a bad outcome from this vaccine. Mm -hmm. And if we can avoid giving it to those folks, then you know we're going to minimize that particular side effect. But again, we can't tease out all that information um, if we're not willing to take a look at these hard realities. So it's not just be, uh, you know, about satisfying the vaccine skeptics or, you know, the danger of becoming anti-vaccine. All of us should be concerned about vaccine safety. And if there's something we can do to improve vaccine safety, then we ought to be doing that research to figure that out. 
and, and not be afraid of what we might find if we do that research. Right. And we don't need to be in one camp or the other. We don't need to believe exactly. panaceas are or vaccines are a panacea for all things or that they're all completely useless, that you can exactly. have a healthy dose of, of skepticism about all things medical, right? And we've yes. we've sort of lost that. I, I know that you that you need to run. And I I really I, I know people say this all the time, but I really appreciate you know, the generosity of your time and your ideas. And I'd love to ask you some more questions another time. I hope we'll ha have the chance to have another conversation. But I think I think what you've done for us today has helped to uh, not just simplify some of these concepts, but to connect them together and, and show us what a more ideal vaccine proposal situation would look like and also yeah. how i think some of us can pull back a little bit and start asking yeah. some questions that might might give us some better outcomes well let's definitely continue the conversation julie i feel like we're just scratching the surface so. today there's so many other things i want to okay. talk with okay. you about and let me just let me just thank you before we close mm -hmm. for the kind of public witness that you gave regarding this issue i was pretty far along down the road of, of my own entanglements and challenging the University of California's <laughs> mandate when I when I saw your first kind of public YouTube video. And then I followed your case up to the point where I think you were dismissed before before I was. But just seeing your going back to Aristotle's moral courage, seeing your 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 prudence, your practical wisdom and and your courage uh, was very encouraging to me that uh, okay, here's another person who's standing up. Um, I, I could I could sense that my situation was you were headed uh, unfortunately down. moving in the same direction as yours. Um, but uh, I like to tell people, you know, that courage is is contagious, and I think you were the first one sort of through that wall, um, and you, you get you get bruised doing this. I I, I know, but um, yeah, your your public witness. Um, regarding you know your ethical convictions, and they they happen to be ethical convictions that that I shared many of the same concerns. Um, help shore up, I think, my own courage to uh, to you know put a stake in the ground here and say no, this is this is my line in the sand, and uh, you know this is something I I need to do. So thank you. I, well, I appreciate that. That's very kind. But you also make, I think, an interesting point, sort of an, an implicit point that, um, I mean, you and I having some familiarity with how, for example, the, the, the pharmaceutical industry works, our spidey sense about these things is probably mm -hmm. a little more in tune uh, yeah. or, or more easy to activate than, <laughs> than the average person's. But, but I do think that, you know, even non-specialists, the average person, we all have a moral compass and we know when something is a little off or if we've cultivated that moral compass, we know That's something's right. a little off. And I know that my initial, um, spidey tingling about this was pretty strong initially, even before I had a chance to put some flesh on those bones in terms of principles and evidence and data. And I, I would just hope that people listen to that little inner voice when something doesn't feel quite right, because I think there's a lot of reason for things not to feel quite right these days. And so, but I thank you for, I mean, you're helping to give articulation to some of those instincts. And we will make this part one of who knows what the denominator is part one of <laughs> maybe looking so. forward to looking forward. <laughs> All to right. Thanks so much, Aaron. Take care. Thanks, Jerry.